Hello, the internet, and welcome to this special episode of Your Daily Zeitgeist! Oh, yeah. Um, still a production of iHeartRadio, and yeah. uh, I'm Jack, that is Miles, yes. um, and today, in honor of Black History Month, we wanted to uh, tell some stories uh, <laughs> of underrated ways that black Americans throughout history uh, created the modern zeitgeist and then were, you know, these are stories that I didn't learn in my history education. I'm saying nobody learns any <laughs> proper black history in school. Like yeah. unless you're unless you're fortunate enough to go to a school where the faculty or the administration there is like, no, we actually need a holistic, well thought out uh, curriculum around uh, the history of people of color, black people through the lens of their experience rather than the oppressor's lens, which is like, and they wanted that and we gave it to them and now they're right. good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one, let, let's just kick off here with Bessie Coleman, who uh, I think one of the things from early 20th century imagination that we like can't quite appreciate is how, into aviation people were like people were obsessed with the i mean because they flying had just been invented people were super into that uh you know fighter pilots in world war one were heroes um and you know i i think it's the the closest i could come is like in the 2000s 2010s when like it was really cool to be like in the tech industry and like how quickly that shifted. Uh, But instead of just like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg making a lot of money, the people who were flying planes and like, you know, being brave enough to experiment with the stuff were, uh, you know, doing heroic acts and winning wars. So it was just a super central part of the, you know, collective imagination of Americans in the early 20th century. Um, and then, you know, it developed so quickly that it passed from uh, humans rocketing through thin air to something we get annoyed if it isn't fast and convenient enough, uh, like in the span of 50 years. But right. at the time, people were blown away by anybody who was going up in the air. Um, people, you know, idolized them. And that's where uh, Bessie Coleman comes in. She was known as uh, Queen Bessie, the aviatrix. Uh, she grew up, uh, her parents were sharecroppers, uh, and then her dad basically left the family, uh, to go live on native. He was, uh, part native American, part African American. And he went to live on, uh, tribal land, uh, because she was just terrible. Uh, the, it was easier there and it wasn't, it wasn't easy there. Right. Um, but and so. Yeah, like watching that evolution of her, like I love reading this anecdote about like, how she even got into flying because yeah. Yeah, her brother wild. fought in World War One, right, and was and was in France and saw what what France was like, and he was like, "Oh, the ladies out they they're just doing shit." Yeah, like they just they okay. So he came back and was like fucking with his sister. Like, yeah, you think you're big time, but in France, <laughs> you know, he's like, right. women are liberated and they right. can do any. They can even fly. And it's just funny how it was. 
you know, I think in talking about black history stories and we were talking about this off mic and even thinking about like how we would talk about, you know, contributions of African-Americans or like what a or what an episode looks like about talking about African-American history in the context of a black history month episode. Right. And it's not just about a listicle, about interesting things African-American people have done. Um, and sort of juxtaposing that with how hard it is. I think most people do that, but you have to take that extra step to begin to actually think about, it's not just that, oh, wow, it was so hard during this time. It's that all of these like inspiring stories, all of these art forms, a lot of things we're going to talk about, they're born out of the pursuit of Black people seeking liberation. Seeking a way to be as free as they saw other people, specifically white people, um, whether that is from the eras of slavery or Jim Crow. But there's this yearning for the feeling of freedom, of liberation. And from that, you get such real deep stories or art forms that are just so undeniable. So, yeah, like so even as I think about Bessie Coleman, it's like, yes, she was there. part of her pursuit of even like being trained as a pilot was that she caught wind of liberation yeah she caught wind of of freedom yeah right and so she's asking you know i think she what crowdfunded a way to even get to france because there's no way she was gonna you know get herself to france um in that time and people were like she's the smart like so smart like they you know she got people to believe in her to do it but yeah yeah but it's just like a it's fantastic to see like what it takes to get there, but also not forgetting that it is, it's all intertwined with the tragedy of oppression. Um, and again, the pursuit of freedom, just that feeling just to, to be you. And in this instance, it was that she's a black woman in a country that forget even just women being able to, you know, become aviators, um, but like the, the other the additional barrier of racism and things like that, that you have to go to another country that you're still even thinking like, but I still want to be free. So then right. that means I have to go to this place. So it's like, yeah, it's like half tragedy, half beauty. But it's also also really, you know, thinking of what all of these achievements actually mean in the context of the continued pursuit of liberation for black people yeah. and all people at this point. But in tension, this context, yeah. yeah. And that tension between, you know, the tragedy of oppression, the beauty of the, you know, struggle and genius that people brought to the struggle for liberation, that tension is the history of America. Like, that contradiction mm-hmm. is the history of America. It's not the history of uh, black America. It's the history of America straight up. Like, yeah. that, and it gets edited out, and that's a disservice to everyone when it gets edited out of the story of America. It, it doesn't allow for a true understanding of American history. Absolutely not. I mean, you, you, the things I've learned just from studying history are so mind blowing. Like that's the one, uh, the only reason I, you know, I went, I went to college cause you know, you're sort of inundated this idea of like, you must go to college for get job. Um, and so I did that, but I didn't, I knew I didn't want to have like be an accountant or whatever. I thought I was probably going to be some silly man at some point but i knew if i didn't do that i wanted to teach history so i i studied a lot of history that was like my major but like the things you learn just about our everyday lives from understanding your history it's so valuable and like the fact that you know a lot of the times these things are obscured or distilled or washed whitewashed in a certain way 
um, yeah, it, it, it keeps us from actually connecting to the real truth. Not to say that it's like, you need to know how ugly things are. I mean, you do, but you also need to know that to be able to envision a better version of that. Cause if you don't have that context, then you're kind of, you're trying to make something without a real recipe card. Yeah. So with regards to Bessie Coleman, you know, crowdfunding again, when she came back knowing how to fly, uh, there weren't jobs for her. Uh, there weren't jobs for black pilots. There weren't jobs for women pilots. Uh, and so again, she had to rely on the generosity of others and basically fly in donated planes, uh, which ends up, uh, she, she, one of them dies while it's in the air. She crashes, breaks a bunch of bones. And then a few years later, another donated plane, uh, crashes and she dies young, but she is a star. And I mean, just with, we, we talk about the, the damage that's done by white supremacy, uh, you know, both with people of color, but also on white people and like the cognitive dissonance that is like that lie in their brain. And I think that, you know, that's also a battle that's being waged across time. Mm -hmm. And anybody who, you know, that, that seed of doubt, anybody who comes in being like, no, you know, a black woman couldn't fly a plane. Surely this is the most, uh, complicated, uh, difficult thing to do. And that's something that, you know, was taken into World War II. That was still like the right. standard narrative in World War II. And, but anybody who saw her or knew her or read about her and the mainstream media tried to edit her out, uh, of, of history, but anybody who saw that, that, you know, that seed of doubt, you can't ign ignore that. That's, yeah. that's going to grow in your mind and in like across the culture. Basically. And, well, and I think in a way, like you'll see this over a lot of the topics we talk about, like to your point is if you're on a diet of saying that this group of people is inferior or less than you and you have to behold their humanity and genius, that will do something to you. Absolutely. Some people can move past and evolve and say, well, I just took a L intellectually there because <laughs> I just I've effed around and found out. Um yep. Or you will go further into your denial. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, but these are these moments that like that inspire. And you know that it, does, it doesn't end with Bessie Coleman. Like there's she inspires. She continues to inspire even after her death. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a road around, I think, Chicago hair named after her. But more importantly, I mean, within the black community, like aviation becomes a thing uh, that people are. You know, that that's just a concept that people are pursuing uh, that, you know, in small part or no small part, like it has an effect that ends up with uh, the Tuskegee Airmen who right. in World War Two were, you know, basically twice as good as any other pilot uh, in terms of they, they fought. Uh, they were great fighter pilots shooting German planes down without uh without losing any pilots or losing any planes. And then like when they had to do bomber accompaniment, like, which is the hardest thing to do. They, yeah, cause you're all going around the slow plane <laughs> that slow underneath plane. the anti-air artillery is just like, exactly. okay, so this would be easy to blow out the sky. Yeah. They lost like half as many planes as any other unit per, per mission. And right. yeah, just had to be 
twice as good, which is something that I mean, know. that's a trope throughout. And, I, you know, I heard it from my own father whose father told him you're when you are you have an awareness of what it means to be black in America. You are told you will have to be twice as good to get half as much. Yeah. Or in general, you have to be twice as good to get noticed. And it's yeah. I mean, you're you're watching it. It's like even statistically, there are people who are like twice as good for right. half the recognition. Yeah. Um, and even with Bessie Coleman, like to just touch on liberation again, one of her biggest inspirations was that she saw that black people were being left behind because they could not get into aviation. Right. And she really felt, she said, for our people to, to keep pace with the rest of the world, we have to find a way to get into aviation as well. This is a new tech, like we have to be there. And again, just, it's about the, like a lot of these people, it's not just like, Oh, I want to do this or that. It's really about like, we know that there is a way to get something better for our people. And we're invested in a country that is taking a really long time right, to figure out what that is. And, it, but the, the exact, like to your point, the entire, you know, uh, pace of American history is about this back and forth of like trying to understand the racist origins with how they're, we're also embracing these cultures to be our own and what that means and everything. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, another kind of military story is the Harlem Hellfighters that, I mean, we can touch on really briefly, but the American military in world war one was like, we don't really want segregated black soldiers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very segregated. Uh, and they lent this group to the French military, to the French army in world war one and they fought longer than any uh, other group of American soldiers in World War I. Uh, also had a military band that uh, was incredibly influential in Europe when they were there, and then came back and was a huge contributing factor to uh, the Harlem Renaissance. Right. Uh, but they came back from the war being like, we more than proved ourselves. There's a dude who was so amazing that they put his face on uh war bond stamps like uh he was a national hero they came back and were like all right like so uh i think they called it the two front war where they wanted you know victory in europe but then they wanted to come home and fight for equality and they uh instead faced that was right at the time when there was this huge white lash uh as van jones called the trump uh, election, which I, I think happens throughout history. Right. Um, but that was the, there was the red summer, uh, so-called because it was a very bloody summer of slaughters, uh, by white people against black families. And then there was the Tulsa, you know, massacre. massacre, you know, that was all happening. Then the resurgence of the KKK, because, you know, there was just a, a pushback because yeah. of, white supremacy being a you know works hard it, right it, it is a self-sustaining uh force in, yeah. in the culture yeah. and with this again you know harlem hellfighters they go they fight longer and harder than anyone and they the american soldiers didn't want to be with them so they had to get loaned out to the french they'd be like well i guess they'll fuck with you um they didn't they were not allowed to participate in the sending off parade to yeah. go to war that was they were not they were not uh given that dignity 
what to leave to fight and die. They also experienced the most losses, I believe, uh, yeah. for any fighting unit. But then they, but they came back and they gave them a parade. And all this to say is like again, like you're saying, this double victory, this idea of how African Americans can serve in the military and have served since the American Revolution. Yeah, but we don't talk about that because I think it's probably ends with like Christmas addicts or something like that. And mm-hmm. we think of like, okay, well, that, that black man died in the, in the Boston massacre. Um, but when you talk about this double victory, it's about, yes, defending a country that has even has enslaved you, but it's because you know that this could help people to see that you're also pulling in the same direction as this country. And you're, you want to also this to contribute to a larger movement for liberation, equality, yeah. injustice. That we can, you know what, we'll go there, we'll serve our country because unfortunately we have to still prove to these people in the American, in America that we are also Americans that deserve the same uh, respect. But yeah, it's, it's just like, it's just, again, it's a nonstop thing. But at every level or at every point in history, we have these moments. And I mean, to think of just, you know. The, the contributions throughout most military conflicts of black soldiers I would blow most people's minds because it wasn't until maybe seven years. I was well out of college before I actually began to see, starting back at the American Revolution, what truly the contributions were in this you know military context. Yeah. A lot of the even Tuskegee Airmen and uh, the Harlem Hellfighters had to be like honored uh, posthumously right. and were only given recognition in like the 2000s or uh, by the Clinton administration in the 90s. And it's just like. Um, right. I think that's why it's not enough to just have kind of retrospective things about being like, this is what's cool about the people right. that did these things. We also have to talk about how diff- even in that time, people were not giving them props like like it's happening now. It was a completely different era, but also one that we have to look in its eye to understand that there's, we have to actually address this and how are we, um, how can we correct and improve how our, you know, our country can move forward and evolve um, in a way that truly is like honoring the contributions of all these people we're going to talk about who just, you know, even though it could be about changing music or sports it's all born out of this singular feeling of wanting to be free and yeah. that that is still owed um, to black people in this country. Um, but we're still trying to figure out how we're going to do that. But uh, even even though with that said, still continue to 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 make strides and and create, you know, these achievements or works of art that just continue. Yeah. You mentioned music, and we are going to talk about that next. Uh, But first, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back. And, you know, when you talk about the history of popular music in America, I, I think... I had an awareness that there's been a pervasive process of invention by black Americans followed by theft and popularization by white artists from Elvis to the Beastie Boys to Eminem to modern artists. Uh, the, there's this article by Wesley Morris, the New York Times critic, about the the history of music that that really like makes it clear that this is like the primary story of 
like we were saying, it's not just the story of black history. It's the story of American history. And right. this is the story of American music. Like he, he, in this article, he points out that like, there wasn't really an American music prior to the minstrel show. Like that, right. w- that was a thing like Americans were into like, you know, just really Western European classical. Well, yeah, music. exactly. Yeah. Like polka and uh and then this white actor T D Rice claimed he saw a old black man on a farm like working with a horse and like imitated his singing yeah. and put a black burnt cork on his face and birthed like the audiences called him back for 20 encores, which I think that's an important detail because that is like, he hit something that was so like desperately craved in by these white audiences. Um, And it's just, it, it's again, this unspoken thing. I I knew that there were, were, was a tradition of minstrel shows in the history of America. I didn't realize it was, like the most popular and the only type of popular music for a long time that right. was truly American. And even from his act, like that's where we even get Jim Crow, that character. Right. Is that's from, a- from uh, T.D. Rice doing yeah. this. It was on which, a farm uh, of somebody named Crow, and so even in, in in this article um, by Wesley Morris, like it even talks about you know the evolution of minstrelsy, right? That how that became it was about this like white gaze on blackness and this fascination with it. But it was at the time it was only comfortable to see it tongue in cheek of a white person impersonating. And that was like the act. It's like, they've kept, wow, like they're doing it. And then even then it evolved to the point where even that, you know, there were black people doing minstrel shows too. And that the, the sort of mental jujitsu or putting yourself in the inception mode of I'm doing an impression of someone doing an impression of me, the who I am, and I have to now reflect that back to this audience in a way that they're going to eat it up. And th- he said, again, uh, he uses that trope of like, talk about being twice as good. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the bizarre contradictory nature of that as an art form is like, it's so cruel. Um, but again, it talks about this fascination with the... Again, this because the call and response music that comes off of plantations um, and, you know, slave songs on ships and things like that. That's like that feeling, even like soul music Mm. that's born out of the struggle and pursuit of freedom. That's why it has this drawing power, because it's so authentic. And even if the song isn't about specifically freedom, it's like, but the expression is so different. It's not this sort of pre-prescribed version of what music is coming into that which is like there there must be a harpsichord a piano <laughs> right. a contrabassoon and this kind of choral arrangement with major key tonality all these other things like blues scales and all these other ways of expressing yourself are coming out of this imperfect way of expressing yourself because prior to that it was very manicured and by the numbers and things like that and yes you know even looking at like at its peak, he points out like in the 2013 Billboard Awards, like the people who are getting or Grammys, the people who are getting nominated are Macklemore, Miley right. Cyrus, uh, you know, uh, Robin Thicke, who are right. like, precisely just doing this thing of like, 
their thing is like, well, I love the music. And of course, there's no there's nothing wrong with liking a genre of music and even taking that as, you know, and performing it. But it it underlines this thing of like, I see it. I like it. I'm going to do it my way. And I'll also get a lot of success from it. Maybe I'll, you know, shift the focus back to honor where the traditions in which I am taking this from. Or maybe I'll just blow up the charts. Right. Um, but it has like this weird thing of America. You know, that's the thing with music. We love black culture. Right. You know, we love black culture. And the, the amount of like when I go on Twitter, the amount of digital blackface I see with people, you know, the, the vernacular I've seen on first on text of Twitter. I'm like, Are, do you, is that you mm. or is that you wanting to be like a black person that you you like? Mm. Um, it's like America wants to love the culture, but can't really go all the way in loving the culture in offering protection, offering freedom, understanding the wrongs that have occurred in the past, and then trying to move forward with that. It's almost like, come on, we like everything, but let's, let's not get too hung up on that. You know, like when I think that's the, the sort of this moment that a lot of black people are waiting for in this country of like, you love the culture you take from the culture. You, it, it gives you joy. It gives everybody, but you can't, when, when are we going to, when is that going to be acknowledged in the sense of, lifting us up or providing yeah. the kind of support that has been asked for since time immemorial but yeah i mean the music thing is is truly like it's 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 the, it's really the american thing because yeah they say the Amer all the american art forms they they talk about were you know like jazz okay right you're welcome uh, i mean hip-hop you're one welcome. of the most profoundly uh just in terms of like how it's stereotypically imagined yacht rock he opens up by being like yacht rock is you know mostly associated with white dudes with mullets in the 80s and right. that is it is straight up just appropriating like you know soul music and other uh r&b music and right other uh forms of black music that uh is just but it's just put put in dockers uh, right, which is also kind of like what my fascination is with Michael McDonald. Right, you know, yeah, because you know he sees like he knows, <laughs> and it's like, what the f Michael? <laughs> and to me, it's funny because I'm like, this dude is really he's, he's going for it, and yeah. it's but it's it's there's still he can't quite get it there, yeah. you know, because he's still Michael McDonald, but yeah. you know what he's trying to do, um, but it's all. Yeah, it's all just part and parcel of, you know, acknowledged or unacknowledged taking and picking and choosing uh, that we do in in our culture. But yeah. yeah. And then he I mean, he talks about how Motown is like the peak of like the achievements of, you know, uh, black artists, uh, you know, blending the, you know, sensibilities that they knew that white audiences would find appealing while also just like taking the music to a higher level than had ever been achieved. But uh, just in terms of the thematic kind of peak for, for the article, he talks about old town road being, um, you know, the banjo is this instrument that is, uh, you know, starts with slaves and uh, is then uh, appropriated by minstrel shows and uh, in the South by white people. And then, you know, just it's this very kind of meta um, reversing of a lot of the music history right. while like drawing a reference to it 
And it's just so interesting that, I mean, he kind of points out it's kind of a silly song, but it like tapped into something so powerful and so like on point for American music and like for the history of American music that it became the biggest number one hit of all time. Right. Exactly. And it's because like, (laughs) because even as you talk about like the sort of aesthetic inception that's going on, right? The banjo music, minstrel shows, things like that. But then he's sampling Trent Reznor, a white guy who that's the stat banjo sample comes from Trent Reznor (laughs) and then turns it into a hit that made the country music gatekeepers lose their damn minds right because they're like suddenly now trying to protect the sanctity i think it was almost like they have every other white art form country yeah. and now what the heck but you know what that's that's what this is that's yeah. what it's it, it's it, it's so it's so weird of like america tries so hard to separate itself from each other without realizing like you know in the more tocqueville type vision of it it's truly this melting pot yeah, it's not like a seg. I mean, I know people. It is segregated, but like the culture of this is truly one of like all these other things. And what level we can acknowledge that and embrace that is a completely separate conversation. But yeah, for that, for then that little Nas X song to become you know <laughs> the biggest song ever, I think it speaks to like this this energy that exists, um, positive or negative, but is just very potent. Another name that I think a lot of people don't know is Claudette Colvin, uh, who nine months before Rosa Parks was arrested in Montgomery, uh, she was a 14-year-old who, like, kind of more organically, uh, without really planning to, her and her friends were sitting in the, you know, back colored section of the bus and the bus was full. A white person came back, sat there and said, you guys have to move back so that you're not sitting as close to the front as I am. And she just was fed up, didn't get up, did the same thing that Rosa Parks is famous for and got arrested. And then the civil rights movement sort of grew out of that. She was then befriended by Rosa Parks, who was an official head of the civil rights movement and uh, organizations uh, who were, you know, part of the civil rights movement at that part at that point, and they, you know, made the calculation that Rosa Parks would probably be more palatable to a white audience. And it's just, I feel like Claudette Colvin gets written out of history because she becomes a footnote. Really, she becomes a footnote because white people want to give themselves credit for uh the civil rights movement and like being like coming around to be right, the from good the perspective guys. of the dominant culture the right. hegemonic class and the the idea that they had to be tailored to that mm-hmm. their kind of inbuilt white supremacy uh had to be like designed around by the civil rights movement i think is not uh is not something that uh, the mainstream culture wants to acknowledge about itself. Right. Or that even that the people in the civil rights movement were even having to do that thinking too, of right. knowing, well, we know how white people are going to respond to this photo of Claudette Colvin versus yeah. Rosa Parks, who's from a respectable family, has a little more social cachet and is lighter, that this will play better um, again in the pursuit of liberation. And yeah, it just, I think it's, her story too is interesting because even like her mom 
they all kind of knew that they're like, yeah. this ain't going to be you, honey. Like Rosa Parks right. is going to take this one. And and we know like that's what should happen. But I think or I mean, that's how they were sort of strategizing in terms of the movement. But yeah, I think it's also it yeah it has to be said that this was it's activism takes all kinds of shapes and, and forms and the road to these like moments there's so much thinking and it's still having to navigate sort of these systems of oppression even to like get the message out that you deserve dignity yeah i mean look how the white media or just the mainstream media treated Trayvon Martin after he's murdered. Right. Suddenly there's pictures of him, you know, that he posted to social media, like with headlines of like, he's no angel. Like that's the, the idea that they, you know, they, they knew they were absolutely right that Claudette Colvin would have been, uh, you know, just discriminated against right. if if she had been and the Rosa just, Parks figure. Can you imagine a, a, this in a kid's history book? Be right. like, well, it, hold on, when Rosa, we know about Rosa Parks, but because of colorism in this country, right, uh, and internalized white supremacy, that even the uh, black activists knew themselves they were having to overcome to optically present a case safe right. enough for the consideration of like that's how deep it has to get. Yeah. But I think that's what's necessary too because. You can't just reduce these things to like it was one person who sat down on the bus and that kicked off. Like, no, this is it's a it's a it's an continued effort. Um, and a lot of a lot of thought has to go into these things. And unfortunately, like these kinds of calculations have to be made. Yeah. And then, you know, one, one of the more popular ways that people are, you know, seeing um, activism these days is through, you know, Colin Kaepernick, uh, NBA players striking. And I think there are a couple uh, sports stories where black history gets completely written out uh, or written around. Um, horse racing was one that I just wasn't even aware of. And I've been to the Kentucky Derby, but uh, African-American Riders were the basically the first black superstars in American sports. They won 15 of the first 28 runnings of the Kentucky Derby. Uh, and then, then and then that made them famous. And so uh, the and that was also ar around the same time that we were talking about with the Red Summer and uh, the Tulsa uh, Black Wall Street massacre. Uh, they started getting pushed out like literally boxed out in in the sense that uh white riders would like push them into the rails would uh you know whip them while literally trying whip to, them like right. literally whip them uh with the whips they were supposed to uh be using to like get their horses to go faster um yeah because like, it's like funny because like when we talk a lot about these about about these stories it's also a story of how we american or white america or the dominant American culture struggles to allow the success at a certain level. Like it gets to a point and then suddenly a, a circuit breaker has to be hit to kind of like level the playing field really quick. Yeah. We saw that again, even talking about this with the concept of white lash or if you want to call it moral licensing, whatever, and having Donald Trump elected after Barack Obama, it got to a point. Yep. And let's kind of let's let's bring it down a couple notches again. And I think that's the thing that we, we also need to bring more awareness to as a country as well, is that there are these inbuilt biases that a lot of people have of like, 
even seeing something like that and not thinking twice about how discriminatory or awful that is. It almost like, oh, right. That's just part of the subconscious of this culture. Um, But by talking about these stories, we, you know, hope to bring that kind of awareness to people because, you know, in talking about Kaepernick, we, we, we talked about how you and I both really didn't know about Craig Hodges until we watched The Last Dance. Absolutely. And we knew who Craig Hodges was. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like when Craig Elo got that, took that shot in his face or Mark Price <laughs> on the Cavs. <laughs> right. You know, Craig Most Hodges was right image. there. Yeah. He was right there. Uh, yeah. In that one, in that, in the series against the Detroit Pistons when Michael Jordan got rocked and he's like, I got to start lifting weights if I'm going to play against Bill Lambeer and these maniacs. Um, Craig Hodges scored more points than Michael Jordan in that game where they went out. And we forget that he suddenly vanished because in 1991, after the Rodney King beating, it was the uh, the Bulls versus the Lakers. And the game one of the championship, he was imploring Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, two of the most visible black athletes at that time, to boycott the game to bring awareness to the just rampant racism that exists in not just America, but policing specifically in, through the context of this uh, Rodney King beating. And how that just... All it took was that for him to stick up and say, I think we should do this because this is a real issue that when the powers that be within the league caught wind of it, it's like, okay, so now you're going to start getting traded. Now you might not come back from, you know, you you were on the injured reserve. Maybe your your playing minutes are going to go down, even though you're an all-star and you're shooting the lights out on paper. Um, And it's, it's hard to watch those moments because Craig Hodges, he grew up in a house of activists and he was raised with the knowledge and awareness of American history and systemic oppression and racism. So when he's seeing it, he couldn't help but to speak out. Unfortunately, this man was so ahead of his time in 1991, just the mere idea of mentioning some kind of act of solidarity to to tell people that we're not accepting this as black men was just way too much and it's hard to blame magic or michael too because that's a weird position to already be in as a black man is to have this power but you are also beholden to the white people that are paying you so it's this hand that feeds relationship that occurs but with craig hodges he was very vocal he he wore a dashiki to the white house um and wrote an eight-page letter talking about all because he had been raised to write letters to your politicians if you have something to say to your leaders and he wrote an eight-page letter and all he got laughed at and that began the end of his career because he was speaking up yeah and And the same thing yeah yeah. mahmoud abdul raouf uh who was one of the most lights out shooters uh at a time when the nba didn't value that as much as they should have but he he dropped 51 on John Stockton, one of the great uh, defensive guards in the history of the NBA. Just a lights-out shooter, college teammate of Shaquille O'Neal. And, yeah, at LSU. Yeah, at LSU. Uh, and he started, you know, just conscientiously objecting by sitting during the national anthem. Like, legitimately, that's what Colin Kaepernick did first before, uh, you know, somebody he was consulting with was like, kneeling would actually be just like a better look. But sitting to just represent that, like, there are, I think he specifically said, like, there are uh, countries around the world where that is a symbol of oppression and violence. And, uh, you know, so... He was sitting, people weren't really paying attention to that for a few games. And then once the league noticed, 
at first, you know, Rod Thorne, who was like the disciplinarian for the NBA, he talked to him and Rod Thorne was like, yeah, I mean, there's no like rule that says you can't do it. So, and right. then David Stern noticed and suddenly he was suspended indefinitely. Right. And then it became a compromise thing of like, well, don't sit, do something else. He's like, well, what if I pray or whatever? And like, it was like this whole back and forth. And again, he was just saying that he was just observing the reality of America right. and commenting on it out loud. But yeah, for him, it's funny too, because he had a bit of a different path than Craig Hodge, Craig Hodges did because he only sort of got into thinking critically about America when he was handed a, a biogra autobiography of Malcolm X from yeah. his coach at LSU. And that's when he actually converted to Islam and he realized he's like, oh my God, I'm actually seeing all of these forms of systemic oppression playing out in real time in front of my eyes, left and right in, in the nineties or at the time he was looking at it. So he had no choice but to speak up because he was aware of it all. Yeah. And that's, what's really interesting too, is like when you see the NBA, uh, you know, trying to get behind the players over the summer um, and during like the bubble postseason and things like that. And a lot of the black lives matter messaging that was going on. There's still a lot that the, the league can do to, I would say, make people like Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf whole. Absolutely. Because the countless dollars that were missed from contracts. They were um, frozen out. Yeah, so, 100%. Like, I mean, it's, they yeah, were both, no, yeah, especially Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf. There's like literally no argument. That dude was lights out. And they, uh, you know, just basically screwed with him, threw him off his rhythm, would hold him out of games, would give him less playing time. There's pressure on his coach. Uh, to play him less and you know I, at the very least they should be given a leadership position with right. with the within the league to help with these issues like just listening to both of them be interviewed around the black lives matter movement uh of last summer and george floyd's murder they are just so compelling to listen to uh and speak so clearly and so lucidly about this because they've been thinking it and doing it for decades now. Like right. they need to be, uh, you know, part, part of this uh, conversation because for too long, it, it feels like it's been a statement crafted by Michael Jordan's management to, you know, and I don't know, like the a hundred million dollars is a great start, which is what Michael Jordan uh, wrote a check for, but it's still, I don't know, like it, people who are actually about doing the work and making uh, the uncomfortable, you know, having the uncomfortable conversations. Uh, right. Because they, you know, because even further back, you know, Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdurov, like they're inspired by Tommy Smith and John Carlos in the 68 Olympics, obviously, like of seeing like, right, these are people who are representing a country that they have a very tumultuous relationship with. Yeah. But it's about a vision that it can be better. That's why it's not just I renounce everything. It's like, yeah, I'm here. But in this moment where you're reflecting on the nation part, I want it to be known that we can be doing better. In fact, we must be doing better because we are not fulfilling the full potential of what the country can be. Um, and for these two athletes, merely observing the reality at that time was just considered so provocative. Um, right. And I think that's where we have to always keep our eyes on how we treat 
people who are speaking out against things and how we're looking at them and also how the media or just any powers that be are trying to frame what is being said as being like, what is, is it? It's a hot take to ask for equality. Right. That's incendiary. That's not. And I think that's where we have to open our minds a bit to understand that, like, we're operating at like 2% of our capacity in this country and we can be doing a lot more. And so, yeah, I think with that is being able to to look back at what our history is, good and bad, and understanding that there's even the most inspiring people, especially in like Black History Month, there's it's all about too. It's not just it's not just observing and honoring these contributions, but also honoring it in the sense that in your lived life after this, more than just February, you can understand that a lot of these things that have given us moments of joy and things to to gather around. These are all have been out of the pursuit of liberation that is yeah. yet to be fully realized. And I think that's where we, we all owe it to each other to begin to move in that direction. And that's why we got to keep, you know, got to keep talking about where we're coming from because then we don't know where we're going to go. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, there are, to, you know, we, we could give examples all day, but I think that's a really good way to leave it. Um, that is going to do it for this special episode of yeah. the Daily Zeitgeist. Uh, we will be back at the regular time with episodes and episodes of trending. Uh, and we will talk to you all then. Bye. Bye.